Reading Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 26, and you can find that on page 1784 of the Pew Bibles. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Jesus Christ will abound on account of me. Thanks, Ruby. Thanks, Ruby. Hey everyone, uh, let me do a couple of quick housekeeping things. Um, this is the first week of our new fiscal year. Um, you'll notice there's new parking lot and new lights and stuff like that. It's things churches do at the end of fiscal years when they have enough money to do such things. Um, it's great that we are able to do it. And um, even with prices of things going up, I wanna thank you for giving at the end of the fiscal year and during it. My only concerns financially were what to do with um, the extra. What, what did God and what would you want us to invest money in rather than how are we going to make it through? And I've really, in the 12 years I've been here, 10 of those years have been like that. The first two we were catching up for 10 years of some stuff. And um, it's really great to see that. Um, next week, the preacher is going to be a young man named Adam Darbone. Um, in order for you to know who that is, you'll have had to have been here at least 11 years. Adam was one of the first pastoral interns we had 11 years ago. He's been a campus and family's pastor at a large church in the Bay Area in California. And he's going to come back, and we're going to get to see him 10, 10 years later with his wife, see what kind of preacher he's turned out to be. He's basically getting to be the age I was when I mentored him. And uh, it'll be really great to have him here next, next week. And then the first verses that Ruby read from verses 12 to 
18, Manohar is going to preach um, when he gets back from India. So right now he's in India, and he is seeing people put in chains, and how that's leading other people to speak the gospel more boldly, and how not everybody is doing everything for the right motives, but Christ is being preached, and that he's finding a way to rejoice, and he's going to tell, like, fresh stories from the field about what God is doing, which I think is going to be great. So, um, while I'm taking a couple weeks of rest, you're going to get stuff better than me, which is good. All right. Let's dive in. One of the things that everybody has to face is um, the fact that psychologists tell us that security or feeling secure is one of our most core needs. Which on some level you can say, it's because we, whatever, whatever. Like, it's very, spirit, it's very spiritually indirect why that's the case. Okay, if you are the sort of creature God made to be both A, to have what Ecclesiastes calls have eternity in our hearts, right? Humans have always believed in everlasting life of some kind of, some kind of another. Even though they knew nothing about it revealed from God and how he spoke and showed himself, everybody always wanted it, right? And yet— we're in these, like, super frail bodies, right? I mean, we don't even, we don't even, un, like, recognize anymore how every single moment of every day we are using skills we mastered before the age of three to move our totally breakable, weak little frail bodies through a world where basically everything can hurt it. Have you noticed that? Like, we walk on our little feet because, like, anything else touches the ground, what's going to hurt? I mean, we're just all moving around. We're made, like, some, like, somebody asked me one time why I don't ride a motorcycle. Because, like, you know, I rock climbed and did, like, whitewater kayaking and stuff in my youth. And they were like, you know, you know, middle-aged guys drive motorcycles. And I'm like, I would drive a motorcycle, except I have ADD and I'm made out of soft pink flesh. <laughs> and so, you know, as long as my kids are home, at least, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep it on the down low, right? And because, like, I'm breakable. I'm, I'm really frail as a human-embodied person in this physical body. And yet, I have a soul— and a heart and a consciousness that desires eternity. And that's a very terrifying contradiction, in a way. Right? How do I, as a creature that wants to last, and so wants security, live in a world among human beings who are incredibly corruptible and corrupt, and constantly produce corruptions that will kill us all? So I have this terrible choice in front of me, and we all do, right? We all have this terrible choice whether or not you're going to be one of the people who provides security for people that need it, and in so doing, endanger your security. You can provide security, and you can attain or enjoy security, but everybody has to face this question. Like, what are you willing to risk as one player in a big game where everybody wants security, but some subset of people are going to have to risk a lot to keep reforming the human beings into a place where everybody's not on the verge of killing each other. Sometimes one of the things that is most destructive about revolutionary ideologies is they have no idea how many people are doing little things based on the moralities they wish to destroy that keep human beings in basic stasis with one another, even with all the injustices that exist between us. We just—we don't tend to be thankful for them, right? But like— Everybody's doing that, and some people significantly more than others risking their security. So there's some things that we think of like straightforwardly, like soldiers risk their security, at least in theory, for the security of others, right? Police, right? People used to refer to the thin red line and the thin blue line. Most people don't even know what those phrases mean anymore. What they mean is is that it's a very thin line 
between you and chaos that will kill you. And there's a very small number of people willing to dedicate their lives for very little honor and even less pay to keep you from that chaos. It is a thin line. So treat them right. Right? Now, that doesn't mean that the military doesn't have to be reformed. Every hierarchy naturally corrupts and has to be reformed. Everyone. Churches, police stations, military branches, always. But there are some people who take the plunge more than others to provide security so other people can appreciate it and have it. And those people take something terrifying into their hands. But it's not just them. Every, but every one of us is making that choice on one level or another. No matter what you do, there's a way in which you're going to do it. And if you are a reformer in whatever you're in, you put your neck on the line. And there's a way to do everything that serves others. And there's a way to do everything that squeezes as much as, it can, as you can out for you so that you have more resources to protect yourself and enjoy yourself. There are ways to parent like that. There are ways to run a business like that. There are ways to be a teacher like that. There are ways to do everything like that. Statesman, plumber. Plumbers provide a kind of security. You know, that you don't appreciate until it's not there. You know what I mean? <laughs> and so it feels sometimes like it's an either-or, right? It's an either-or. Like, do I get behind the thin whatever line and enjoy the security, or do I put my neck on the line and provide security? And is it an either-or? Is it one or the other? Like, if I live to provide security for others, will I never be secure? And so therefore, is nobility the willingness to stand on the thin blue line, the thin red line, the thin whatever line that keeps everybody else from chaos, is it just therefore a form of disposability? If you choose nobility, you choose disposability for yourself. And can a human being ever really do that? If security, your desire for security is truly a core need of your very being, can anybody do that? And is that why in many of the places where people choose nobility, we do find corruption just like everywhere else? Among statesmen that are supposed to be serving us, we find corruption, right? Among courts and lawyers and sometimes even police and military. And let's not forget pastors. And I would argue right now with some of the surgeries and counseling and chemicals being used, psychologists and social workers. There's this uh, movie that came out recently, the new Marvel movie, The Multiverse of Craziness, right? And um, there's this—okay, listen, I, I've always hated Disney, all right? No, I don't hate Disney. I don't hate Disney. I despise Disney. <laughs> okay, there's a difference, all right? I don't like the thing— I don't, have, I don't have a feeling about the people. And li listen, it's not their politics. I hated Disney when I lived in Florida and had to take my kids to the stupidest idea in the history of the world, an amusement park, and stand in line for 17 hours to spend 30 seconds smiling and to be relieved of hundreds of dollars of my money. That's why I hate Disney, okay? The politics is just icing. All right, 
but I don't hate the films near as much, okay? Um, and, and one of the, there's, there's a couple places in the, movie, in the movie where these two guys that are like, they're, they're basically like the big magicians, and basically they're holding off everything evil in the universe from destroying Earth, and basically nobody knows they're doing it, right? And there's this one point where there's this woman who asks Doctor Strange, are you happy? And then he, it kind of haunts him a little bit because he's not happy, and because he's given up his pursuit of those happy things to save the world from the universe, and then later he's talking to the only guy who outranks him, this guy Wong, who's the Sorcerer Supreme, and he turns to Wong right when they're all about to be killed, basically, and he's like, are you happy? And Wong's like, you're just a completely ridiculous person. I mean, he's just like, are you kidding me? That's the question? Like, that's what we're talking about right now? He's like, don't you re— Like, he doesn't—I mean, they don't go into it. He just kind of looks at them funny. But it's kind of like, like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You took it to your hands, nobility. Like, either nobility is inherently compatible with a deeper security, or you are disposable. Or you have to be a coward. Is the only way to be happy to be a coward? Is religion fraught? Is the only religion that works the one that teaches you how to be a better coward? Because we're all dead in the end, as John Maynard Keynes said. So spend yourself into oblivion. Destroy everything with debt because— in the end, none of us are going to be here. Is that the way we all should live? That's the economics we all use. The economics of death and cowardice. Leave nothing for our children. Give them our bills. And then beat the system by not having any children. Right? Now, in the book of Philippians, the Apostle Paul is making a very simple point based on the lives of the Philippians, based on his own life, which is focused on the idea of this. In order to be a person who chooses to be on the thin line, to choose courage, that can only be sustained really strongly through joy. Joy is what makes it possible. And so he starts out the book in verse 4 saying, he says, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that is, having courage in my willingness to pray for you over and over in this jail cell where I'm rotting and where they're eventually just going to cut my head off. I believe and I have joy every time I think of you. My heart, in this, in this place, knowing what's coming, my heart is filled with joy. And I'm confident that the good work God started in you, he's going to bring to completion. He's going to do it. Right? And then he talks about these other things. And then he gets to this section. He says, listen, he says, um, I know you're thinking that this, per this person, me, who came to you and taught you the gospel and we're dear to each other, we love each other, that they just threw me in prison and my life is basically going to be destroyed. And you, and you think, like, where's God in all this? I know you're struggling with that. But he said, listen, it's all served to advance the gospel, don't you see? All of it. Right? They threw me in prison like I was a criminal and everybody called me a criminal. But the way I've comported myself with Christ— in my imprisonment, everybody knows I'm not a criminal, and everybody knows the thing that has me here is my devotion to Jesus. And so all of the prison guards, all of the statesmen, all the way to the emperor himself are learning that I am in chains for Christ. And because I was thrown in prison, 
I couldn't do the heavy lifting for all the other believers. So all these other brothers and sisters in the Lord that hadn't really shared their faith because they were afraid, they saw me get thrown in prison and they saw me not lose my courage. And then they realized that the gospel had to be preached. And then they looked at me and they said, okay, if that happens to us, that happens to us. Losing everything isn't as catastrophic as we thought. It's almost like, I mean, what would really happen to you if everything was taken away from you? What would really happen to you? Would you cease to be you? Would you lose yourself? Because here's the thing. If you would, you're not a self. You're not a person. You have this, like, this non-self relationship to the stuff in your life. To be a a real person who's mature and complete is everything can be taken from you and nothing's been taken from you. Right? You see, Paul was like that. You take everything from him. People took everything from Paul all the time. (laughs) Threw him in prison, put him on a boat that shipwrecked, took away everything he had, gets out of prison, ends up back in prison, gets sick, almost dies of malaria or something like that, or can hardly see. His body's breaking down. He has a thorn in the flesh that's really hard to overcome. God doesn't take it away. His friends like Timothy get sick with like terrible stomach problems that make traveling really hard, and yet he does it anyway. Like, like everything's taken from these people, from their physical health to their freedom to their belonging, everything, and nothing's taken from them. Because there's a joy in them. That's everything. Right now, let's go through. What that means is this. Our destruction and our deliverance are compatible with each other. I mean, think about this. We worship a crucified, that is killed, destroyed, and risen Savior. It says in Hebrews that when Abraham took his son to sacrifice him, right? And God had said literally the chapter before that, that it was through Isaac his offspring would be reckoned. Abraham was killing his son and himself. And it says in Hebrews that when the angel came and interposed the ram on behalf of Isaac, that he received him back from the dead. Right? Like the whole story of Christian faith, everything that happens to us is a death and resurrection. And not just when we repent and believe in Jesus. Jesus says you have to take up your cross and follow me every single day. Every day is a choice as to whether or not to believe in the current ministry of the risen Christ. Like, when you believe in Jesus, to for, that he died on the cross for you and to forgive you of your sins, you, you're not done, okay? You're just starting to believe in Jesus. Then you're going to believe in Jesus as your high priest, and as your shepherd, and as your spiritual physician, and as your resurrector, and as the warrior that goes before you, and as the one who keeps you safe, and as the one who never lets you go and causes you to endure and leads you so that we can follow after him as the author and perfecter of our faith. Like, there's a hundred thousand ways to believe in him in every way where you step up to that thin line and you face whatever it is with whatever nobility is in front of you. You're dying every time because every time you stand there, some kind of spear is possibly going to go through you and you risk everything and it feels like death. And Jesus says, that's literally how you come to life. That's literally how you come to life. I think it was Winston Churchill said that there's nothing so exhilarating as being shot at and not being killed. 
So you'll never feel more alive than somebody shooting at you and you not dying. I think he means not even being hit, frankly. But, you, but it was, it's in like the risk of that moment that you feel alive because everything's on the line. Not just your physical health, but your character, your courage, your hope, what you do, why you're doing it is all wrapped up in that moment. And what Jesus is saying is like every single day, you're doing that. Every day you are generous. Every day you treat somebody who's acting like your enemy with the dignity of somebody who's an image bearer. Every time you make a sacrifice for a child or a friend, every time you go to work and you produce something that really is good value for the life of another person to benefit them and where they might be able to take advantage of you and you risk that. Every one of these little choices of nobility is you putting yourself on the line and that's when you really follow Christ. And that's when in the dying there is resurrecting. That's when you're in step with the Spirit. That's when you're acting like Christ. That's when you're filling up in your flesh the affliction that is still lacking, that the ministry you've been left to do. That's when you become a Christian. Not, not the pedantic sense. You become a Christian when you receive Christ. But that's when you're molded into one and made into what you've been declared. And that's where joy really exists. Right? That's why if Dr. Strange had asked Jesus in the garden, are you happy? Jesus would have said, I have food you don't know anything about. I have happiness. I have a well of joy you don't know anything about. But he meant for us to know about it. All right, we're more than halfway through. We haven't gotten to the first point yet. Um, what this means is <coughs> that God does not advance the gospel at the true expense of his beloved ones. He doesn't. He does it at the expense of his beloved ones, but not the true expense of his beloved ones. Okay, I'm going to go through these a couple of points real quick on this. A couple hundred. Okay, God's advance of the gospel and my deliverance are compatible. God's advance of the gospel and my deliverance are compatible. You have to understand that. You have to believe that. You have to know it. Because otherwise you'll feel every time Jesus calls you up into nobility of any kind, any kind of faith, any kind of godliness, you're going to be terrified because you're going you're to fear that you're just his cannon fodder, that you're disposable. Right? But his beloved son was not disposable. But his beloved son was crushed. Right? Now, it's important to realize that God's revealed will is, is that what he is doing is he's doing everything to advance the gospel, right? God wants to reconcile his estranged creation to himself. He wants to readopt the estranged human race as his children, and he wants to give them everything he intended to at first and more. That is God's fundamental, direct, revealed will. Of all the other things he's doing, he is doing that, and he is never not doing that. And that's why Paul can say about his imprisonment, he said, listen, don't you guys see? Like, this is great. Why? Because he's judging everything in his imprisonment by this. Is the gospel advancing? Not, am I going to get my paycheck? Or like, how's my health? Everything about how he judged how his life was going is, is this advancing the gospel? And he could see in strange ways that he couldn't have predicted and he didn't expect that it was. <coughs> and so he was full of joy. He said, because of this, I rejoice, right? Now, it's also true 
that his revealed will is that he'll deliver us, right? I mean, Mark read that in Psalm 34, right? I mean, Psalm 34 says, like, that God will deliver his beloved ones. This, the story of the whole Old Testament is God says to his people over and over again, if you trust me, I'm going to deliver you, right? He, God, God's message in the Old Testament to his people is not, listen, if you follow me, I will let you be destroyed, killed, and completely used up so that I win. That's never his message. But it feels that way to us. It feels like, it feels like we're just doing the job sometimes. And it, usually that's because worldliness is creeping in and we see other people at leisure and we're not. Like we've put our hand to something and nobility requires like strenuous work. It requires courage. It requires testing. It makes you feel thinned out and, and you can tell not everybody's trying. It's frustrating. Right? Like, if everybody would do a little bit of nobility, things would be way more fantastic, and we would have to individually do a lot less. But that's not how it is. It's never been that way. It's never even been half of people, right? God's always been working with the Old Testament calls what? A remnant. Right? It's the piece of sourdough left over you use to fill the entire new loaf. Just a little bit. Jesus used the metaphor of yeast smallest amount of ingredients, but it changes the nature of the whole loaf. That's what you are in Christ. And that was, that's what Christ was for humanity, right? And so Paul says in the midst, he says, listen, I know that what's going to happen is going to turn out for my deliverance. My deliverance. Not Jesus' deliverance and not even your deliverance, but my deliverance. I'm in prison. I might get executed. I've lost everything, but I want you to know that this is all going to turn out for me. That's pretty good, right? Now, I want to say one more thing before we go on to exactly what that means, is that God's promise of deliverance comes through his means. And this is really important because sometimes Christians use God's promise to reject God's directions. For example, God says that he's sovereign over everything, right? God's in control is the simplest way to say that though not very nuanced, right? And so, how does that make you feel about praying? God knows his own mind. God has his own will. And God's in control of any, for everything. God knows what he's going to do. So what does it avail you to pray? Right? I mean, people think this all the time. I can't tell you how many people I've heard this from. I can't tell you how many atheists, atheists I've heard this from. But it, it bothers me a lot more when I hear it from Christians. Right? And it seems strange that the Apostle James would say, you don't have because you don't ask God. Well, why don't I have because I don't ask God? If God wills to give it, he gives it. If he doesn't will to give it, he doesn't give it. He knows his own will, and the Bible says he does his own will, and he does it gladly. So why? How can that be? And the answer is, sorry. And the answer is, because that's the way he says it works. And he doesn't tell you how. But you see, if you think, well, God's promised I'm going to persevere or I'm going to be delivered, and that's just all there is to it, I don't have to do anything he says to experience the story and work of becoming the kind who perseveres and doing it. You can't turn around and say God let you down when it seems like he didn't fulfill his promise. The Apostle Paul says this, I know that through your prayers— and through the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, and implicitly, 
and believing the things I'm telling you in this epistle, through that, I'm going to be delivered. This will all work out for my deliverance because I'm going to continue to believe. I'm going to continue to believe in Christ and follow Christ and see him as the crushed and yet resurrected Savior. And I'm going to follow him. And everybody here is going to know I'm in chains for Christ. And the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ is going to help me. I know that. And I know you're going to pray for me. And I know that God has chosen in his means to respond to prayer in some mysterious dynamic way. And because you're praying for me, and because the Holy Spirit is with me, and because I'm going to exercise faith, this is going to turn out for my deliverance. And listen, it is sheer intellectual arrogance to think you can plead the promises of God and ignore the means of God. Like, that God, the God in, in, in John 10 says he will, he's the great shepherd and no one can take his sheep from him. Right? So he's going to keep all of his sheep to the end. So you shouldn't have to read the Bible or go to church or love other believers or grow in godliness or worship God or do any of those things because he's going to keep you to the end. Right? So you could be a sheep that like makes friends with wolves and jumps off cliffs and like runs whenever the shepherd, away whenever the shepherd talks to you. And he's going to keep you to the end because he's the good shepherd. And that's baloney to quote a Wisconsin food. God fulfills his own promise through the exercise of faith by us sheltering ourselves in his own means. So don't ever think that because God has promised your deliverance, even in his own revealed will of bringing forth the gospel and advancing it, that if you just ignore everything he says to be part of, that he will bring everything about for your deliverance. You don't have because you don't ask God, the apostle said in the first century, and that hasn't changed. Does that make sense? So even though that it's true that our deliverance and God's will advancing the gospel are compatible, him risking of us in the work of the gospel and us being delivered in the sovereign hand of God, that those are compatible. Don't make, let that make you flippant or ignoring in the means of God doing the things he's called you to. Does that make sense? The second thing is, deliverance in Christ is being honored in the body. Is Christ being honored in my body? What is deliverance? Paul says, I have every—I actually am rejoicing because I have an eager expectation. That word is only used once in the New Testament. It is so eager. He said, I have this eager expectation and hope that I will be delivered. Okay, great. What's deliverance, right? Because you might think delivered there means getting out of prison, right? Like, I'll win. I'll win my court case. I won't be killed. And so then you read on, and you're like, well, what does Paul think it is, right? And Paul's very clear about what he thinks it is, right? He says, is my eager expectation hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be exalted in my body. So what is deliverance? Right? It's not winning his court case. And it's not salvation in heaven. It's something else. What is it? Right? It's really simple. He says, here's deliverance. When this society of Rome decides to treat me like a criminal, decides that I'm the scum of the earth, and decides to destroy and kill me, and they pour shame on me, and they seek to break me under the weight of their shame so that I accept their reproach of me and their hatred of me and their scorn of me, that I will stand knowing I stand in the approval and pleasure of God. And their waters will break on me like an iceberg. 
I will never fall to their shame. I will in no way be ashamed. And therefore, even if they kill me, Christ will be exalted even in the frailness of my body. I will be delivered. That is, I will die well. I will persevere in faithfulness to the utter end. That's deliverance. Do you understand? That's deliverance. Is that what you think deliverance is? That through the prayers of the saints and the power of the Spirit, by walking in faith, that you will in no way be ashamed and you will exalt Christ with your body no matter what happens to you. Listen, I remember memorizing that when I was a teenager. For me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Okay, that, that's a dangerous verse. Because you can walk around saying that as cheap parrot talk. And then the minute you don't get into the college you want to, you can walk away from Jesus. And I've seen it. I've seen 16-year-olds write that in their little journal and be like, oh, that's good, yeah. Because it feels like you're getting shot at and not killed. It feels exhilarating. It feels like meaning. And then your wife miscarries, or your husband walks out on you, or you don't get the promotion, or you are going to war, or like something terrible happens, and you're like, oh, stinking God. It's like, you want to read? Let's read your journal. Because it was, it, this was a cool verse when you didn't have to pay for it. There's a lot of Christians that have, you know, Luke 9, 23 memorized, take up your cross daily and follow me. In losing your life, you'll find it. Yeah, okay. What was your death today? What was the death today? What was the, when did you treat somebody else better than yourself? When did you lay down your pride? When did you listen when you wanted to yell? When, like, when did you actually die following Jesus today? When did you stand on the thin line of nobility? When did that actually happen? I don't expect from humanity nobility, right? I mean, think about this. It's a little ironic that God gave Satan one of the most profound anthropological statements in the whole Bible, right? In the first verses of, of Job, Satan says, we all know what human beings are like. I've paraphrased it a little bit on the slide. We all know what human beings are really like, right? Almost all human beings will do anything to save their lifestyle, and the rest will do anything to save their lives. There's no one that believes in God enough to change that. The whole question of the book of Job is, is even Job the godliest man that there is? Can he beat that statement? Because remember, round one is he takes everything from him, but not his life. Every man will do, almost every man will do anything just to save their lifestyle. And then he says, okay, destroy his life, everything, take everything from his physical body, like he's going to lose his life, but don't actually take his life. And let's see what he does. Right? And Job barely squeaks through. He gets a C, but a C is an A plus, 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 plus. Sometimes. Right? And so what Paul is saying is saying, there's, there's only really one way to make that not true. And that is to have the kind of joy that makes you want to live on the thin line of nobility with Jesus. Knowing that, like, even if the spear gets run through you and all your dreams are burned to ashes, you got your dreams burned to ashes with Jesus. You're like him, the one who never married and never had children and 
didn't get to screw around and was serving people to the point where his family thought he was going insane. And but if you asked him if he was happy, like they did in John 4, what's going on here? He's like, he's like, they're like don't you want food? He's like, I've got food you don't know anything about. That is, I'm not a man of sensuality, right? That's what he's saying. When he says, I talked to this woman and I led her to faith in my father, I don't need your bread. What does that mean? Right? I'm hungry, I eat bread. It pleases my sensuality, my, my physical bodies, my neurology. Like, it's the, it's the lowest form of human happiness. It's a good form of human happiness. You walk outside and that, that breeze blows on your face and you're like, oh, this is beautiful. That's partly sensuous, right? But it's also your heart pulling something in through your neurology and your deeper self and your sensual self are in integrity with another, and so you can appreciate what is simplistic and sensual, right? Which is why there are many sensual pleasures God freely gives. But there are deeper pleasures that come from standing on the line of honorability. Saving a woman who was lying to herself, lying to him. Like, that was food. That was joy. How can I be hungry when I'm this happy? When was the last time we said that? We made up a word, hangry, because we're incapable of it. And we, we raise our kids like, I see this, like parents are like, well, you know, Johnny's behaving like, an, like a little monster, but it's because he hasn't eaten, you know? It's like, and I'm like, okay, do you want to raise a person incapable of controlling themselves if they're a little hungry? Like, is that what we're doing? Do we believe that complete sensual satisfaction is necessary at every moment for moral action? And is this how we should raise our children? Like, I get it if he's like literally 18 months old, okay? I get it. He's a work in progress. <laughs> but I struggle with that. You know? Okay, I need to keep moving. Sorry. We've only got nine points left. Um, so Paul says this. This is what I believe. This is what I believe can happen. I believe that I will not succumb to their shaming because I, I know God approves of what I'm doing. And then he says that I'll have full courage, now as always. It's interesting, that word that's translated courage, in most other contexts in the New Testament, is translated as plainness, directness. That is, there's, there's, it's used like four or five times in the book of John where people say, will you just tell us what you're talking about, Jesus? And, this is, and then Jesus spoke to them plainly. It's this word. This translated courage here. He spoke to them courageously. But here's the thing. Think about, how, think about how dangerous telling the truth is. With no guile, with no self-protection, with no equivocation, you just say it plainly. Dear Emperor Felix, you're not a lord. Not really. Like, Emperor, like, Emperor Titus, I know that you think you're a god, and they're building statues to you like you're a god, but you're a man just like me. You're frail, and you're going to die. And Christ has died for all the evil that you have done so that you could be forever redeemed. It's that simple. Kill me in the plainness of my words if you wish. But this is the truth. And we're living, it seems, increasingly in a time where the plainer you speak, the more danger you're in. If you speak the truth— according to what the Lord told us to speak about all kinds of things. And he says, I believe that I will have the grace to speak plainly 
which in this context is the height of courage, and that Christ will be exalted in my body. That word exalted is only used once or twice in the New Testament. The, the four times it's used in Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's used in Daniel of the kings of the great empires raising themselves above everything else. Saying, I am above everything else. And Jesus says, I'm going to use this frail physical body. I'm going to use the moment they break it to show them that Christ is above myself. So that they might learn it. They might somehow see it. Right? The last thing is, is that um, that kind of joy that leads to courage will produce a continuing— that if, if I continue in the body, it's going to be fruitful service. Paul's like, listen, th- there's no way Satan wins. There's no way evil wins. There's no way ignobility wins. Like, if, I, if they kill me, Christ is going to be exalted in my body. And if they don't, I'm going to keep doing this work of advancing the gospel. Right? And it's difficult for him because he says—sorry, let me skip to the end. He says, listen, what it means for me to go on living in the body, to be martyred without being killed— is to be this witness, to be this person everywhere. That is, I'm going to do something that's fruitful for the Lord. And he says, like, it's actually kind of hard because I, I, I have enough faith to die. He said, you guys, listen, I have the faith to die. I'm not trying to avoid it. He's like, I'm not suicidal. It's not like I want to die. Nobody who is holy wants to die. Not just because nobody in their, in their right mind just wants to have their body broken, but nobody wants to leave the beauty of God's creation. Life is a good and beautiful thing. But life and survival aren't the same thing. And if you're put in a position where you have to either lose your character, your identity, or your physical life, I mean, Jesus would rather die than lie. He had plenty of opportunities to lie and save his life. He didn't just—he didn't just get himself killed. Jesus didn't intentionally get himself killed. He just didn't lie. He'd rather die than lie. He'd rather die than sin. He'd rather die than do anything that wasn't exalting the beauty of God's reign over all creation and his desire to redeem all people and to show people what was just and right. Like that— He's not going to back down on any of that. And Paul's like, listen, that is life. And I am not going to trade in life for survival. Not ever. Not ever. And so if I have to die to keep my being and identity, then I will die so that I can live. I will not live so that I can die. Survival can be a paltry thing. I'll stand on the line of nobility and be killed because I will not surrender the line of nobility to someone else who wishes to destroy it. Right? He said, but listen, so I want to go be with Jesus. He said, but I also need to think about what's necessary because when this is over, this is over. What's needed is for me to be here and to embrace this life and to do everything I can. He says, for your progress and joy in the faith. Do you see what he's saying? He's arguing that verse. He says, listen, everything comes down to joy. The whole point I'm going to come to you is so that your joy will overflow. That's what I want for you. That's everything I want for you. And once that foundation of joy is set, then you can progress in everything that there is in the faith. 
There is no progress in the faith that will be limited for you because you'll have the joy that produces the courage to walk with Jesus who can then take you in through the help of the Spirit and the prayers of the saints to anything so that in the end, you will have the confidence to know that you will be delivered. Christ will be exalted in your body in living or in dying. And if they kill you, to live as Christ and to die as gain. And if they don't, it will mean fruitful service in the body for the advance of the gospel and for the progress and joy of other believers. For real life, capital L, however you know it, worshiped instead of survival. You see, friends, um, when Paul says in another epistle, he says, don't grow weary of doing good. He doesn't just mean try harder. Jill Reese said one time, there's, it feels like that there is a weariness not cured by rest. I love that quote. It's like Marcus Aurelius could have said that. I mean, that's fantastic, right? What does that mean? Like, when we do our work, sometimes it just makes us tired because we're working hard with our bodies. But there's a kind of leaking of the soul by which everything we do for nobility's sake, everything we do because we know it's good, we do it because we should, we do it because it's true. Worldliness pokes holes in our reservoir of joy and we start leaking it profusely. And when that joy isn't present, the actual energy by which we do, we give ourselves a nobility and we risk ourselves in these things isn't there. And so we get tired. And when we get tired, we get resentful, and we get angry, and we cut corners, and we get afraid that all the sacrifices that we've made have really been for nothing, or that maybe it's somebody else's turn to do the right thing, or maybe I don't need to go that far, or we start falling into the insanity of believing that we can reason about what's good and, well, to say it very literally, to hell with God. Only joy in the Christ that lived and died already for you has the capacity to build the plain courage necessary to live that way. And there really isn't another way to stand on the line of nobility and to be formed in it in the risk of life and death every day in big things and very small things by which you can stand and you can have joy. So that when other people tell you, why are you happy doing all these things? You can say, my father's given me a food you just don't know anything about yet. Let's pray. Lord, as we literally take the bread of the ordinance of communion and drink the wine, we pray that in that you would, um, you would work in us in such a way as to rise up to believe, to have faith. Not just a, a general belief in Jesus for salvation, but a complete belief in Jesus for everything. Our Savior, the author and perfecter of our faith, our ascended high priest, our leader, our shepherd, our lover, our warrior, our healer, everything. Please help us to do 
what is in our hands, the means you've said, knowing that we will be helped by the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And help us to pray for each other, as we should. In Jesus' name.